Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Mallory Mercer, Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement for the STAR Coalition. On this podcast series, we are going to shed light on some of the most stigmatized and misunderstood areas of the mental health industry. Our hope is that through this podcast, we can bring transparency and light to a system that is so heavily scrutinized. We aim to share vital information about a multitude of mental health topics while spreading the message that research equals hope. July is BIPOC Mental Health Month. In this month, I want to honor the story of Carmen Johnson. Carmen is a mom, professional, sister, daughter, friend, and she lives with bipolar disorder. I wanted to share her story to show that people are much more than a diagnosis. And once you're able to receive a diagnosis and have the access to the care that you need, your life can radically change for the better. Carmen is a fierce advocate for breaking the stigma associated with mental illness, and she also works in clinical trials research, which is how we were connected. We first bonded over her experiences as a data collection interviewer, clinical research coordinator, and project specialist at a CRO. However, upon talking to Carmen, I realized just how much insight she brings to the table through her lived experience with mental illness and her experience of being a woman of color. In her current role as Associate Project Manager for Decentralized Trials, she's able to utilize her lived experience and experience as a woman of color living with mental illness to collaborate on ways to reach communities of color and educate them on clinical research. Outside of work, Carmen loves gardening, listening to live music, going to the beach, and traveling to new places. Carmen said she's passionate about advocating for others with mental illness because she has empathy. She knows what it's like to be in a situation where you're not fully in control of yourself. She wants to break the stigma surrounding mental illness. And one of her pet peeves is when she's watching a movie or having a conversation and someone says they're so bipolar when referring to someone who is off the hinges. That is just not the case, Carmen says, with people who live with mental illness. And she wants people to recognize that. We're so thankful to have Carmen on today's episode to celebrate BIPOC Mental Health Month. Welcome to the podcast, Carmen. We're so honored to have you. Thanks, Mallory. I am so honored to be here. So let's start off. Will you tell me a little bit about your life growing up? So I always say that my childhood was just as bipolar as my diagnosis. On one hand, my mom did everything that she could to shelter my sister and I growing up in Baltimore, Maryland. She made sure that we lived in neighborhoods with great schools and that we took advantage of every opportunity available to us. So, for example, even down to sign language lessons. But then on the other hand, my mom was very physical in her approach to parenthood. So she was a single mom. She was a young single mom. You know, things were financially unstable at times. And she was not necessarily always the most patient parent. (laughs) I really remember growing up afraid. I was afraid to do the wrong thing. I was afraid to say the wrong thing because all of these behaviors typically resulted in a punishment of some sort. And typically that was a beating and typically with a belt. So I remember one instance in which my sister called my mom and said that 
she didn't, my sister didn't know where I was. So we were latchkey kids. We, every day after school, we would go home and, you know, it would just be my sister and I. We had friends in the neighborhood, one particular friend every day after school. I would go with her and her grandma who chain smoked in the car the whole time. We would go to Royal Farms. My friend would get a Crunch Bar and a Pepsi. And that was just our everyday routine. That said, me and my sister called my mom one day and said, hey, I don't know where Carmen is. And so my mom came home after my sister called her. And when I got home, of course, my mom was pissed. She was probably angry that she had to leave work early. I'm sure that was a frustration. She was probably worried. But anyways, that said, my punishment, I had to take off my clothes and my mom beat me in the bathroom while I was naked. And after that beating, I remember lying on my bed, like stomach down, because I believe that my back hurt at the time. And my sister, she sat next to me crying and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know why she called my mom, but she knew where I was. So anyways, that said, that's an experience that sticks with me. And I guess long story short, my childhood was just very unpredictable is a good word for it. That story is hard to hear. And, you know, I always ask about people's childhoods because I like to know what your network was like. You know, did you feel like you could talk to your family members? And it just sounds like you might have been on pins and needles and walking on eggshells. And I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, parents do the best they can. But sometimes looking back, things stick with us like that. And it's hard to understand. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. I'm, I'm sure that was very traumatic and probably had a lot to do with how, you know, you handled the rest of your childhood anytime, you know, you, you felt like you made a mistake or you messed up. Mm hmm. So had anyone in your family ever had any experiences with mental illness that you knew of growing up? So when I was growing up, I didn't really understand what it was at the time. But my grandmother, I, my paternal grandmother, I now know had manic depressive disorder. We call it bipolar now. So at the time, I didn't realize it. But since I when I got a little bit older, I understood what exactly she was going through. So growing up watching your grandmother, what was your perception of mental illness? I quite honestly always had a feeling of unease around my grandmother. She used to sit on her porch in her rocking chair and just kind of stare out into space and she wasn't present. A lot of that had to do with her marriage. It was very physically abusive, so I'm sure that that had an impact on her. But a lot of it was mental illness, and it gave me a negative view of mental illness, manic depression. It just, it didn't look like, it didn't look good. So growing up, like, my perception of mental illness was very, very negative. And what about your other family members? How did, how did they describe her behavior and interact with her? So I come from a family <laughs> where, it, and this happens on both sides, happens my maternal and my paternal side, we just kind of skirt around issues. We don't talk about things. So we, people can see behaviors and recognize that they are abnormal, but we just don't talk about it. And I think that that's honestly something that's very common in certain families. I won't generalize, but I don't think that that's uncommon behavior. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear a lot of people, you know, when they experience that, they don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. So definitely not out of the ordinary, but it does make it hard when, you know, one day down the road, you may potentially have to deal with that as well. So let's talk about that. When did you start to sense a shift in your own thoughts and actions? So as I mentioned, I had a pretty traumatic upbringing. I remember a point where I was around seven or eight years old. I was really sad. I'm pretty sure that there was a situation where I got in trouble that probably precipitated this one particular night. But in general, I just looked at my life as a TV show. I felt like I was a character in a TV show and I always just waited (laughs) for the commercial break to come. Kind of like the Truman Show, but this was before the Truman Show. (laughs) But yeah, when I was probably around eight years old, I, again, like I said, after probably a traumatic experience, I swallowed a bottle of Tylenol. Took the whole bottle. I was in the bathroom. I remember looking at myself very vividly. That was a very vivid memory. And I was crying Mind you, again, I was eight years old, but I was in the bathroom and I was crying and I told myself life is horrible and I don't want to live this life. So I took a bottle of Tylenol. I mean, obviously, (laughs) in hindsight, Tylenol is not something that will kill you. I mean, maybe long term it will impact your liver function, but in the the immediate, it's not going to do anything. So anyways, that night I woke up. And I was violently vomiting and I woke up and screaming, I threw up, I threw up. And I was crying and I was screaming and my mom ran into the room and my sister was there. And later it actually became an inside joke of sorts. They would say, oh, remember that night when you woke up screaming and you were saying, I threw up, I threw up. But it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I finally shared with my sister what had actually happened that night. And of course, she had no idea. Like, it was funny until she realized it wasn't. So that was an experience that kind of shifted my thoughts and, and, and made me realize maybe there's something going on. Wow. Eight years old is just crazy to think, you know, you should be focused on playing with your toys and, and running around outside, you know, not wanting to end your life. That's so sobering, I think, to hear that you were that young when that happened. And the fact that it just goes to show things are happening under parents' roofs that they might not even know about and you know the importance of just being in touch with your kids and knowing what they're experiencing and the fact that for years it was a joke was probably really hard for you to explain to them you know what had actually occurred that night and so I think that's a really powerful story so from that point how long did it take your family to notice a shift in your thoughts or your actions so I feel like they may have observed some behaviors, but I think the like really precipitating event one year, it was actually the first semester of my sophomore year at Howard University. I, I remember I had gone to Starbucks and I was late and I walked to my class and I touched the door handle and I said to myself, I can't do this. And I called my mom and I told her, if I don't leave school, I'm going to die. 
And of course, <laughs> I mean, when your child calls you and says this, you're thinking, oh, my God, they're just being overly dramatic. Did they fail an exam? You know, what happened? So, yeah, my mom didn't take it extremely seriously. And that's understandable. That said, the next day, I packed all of my things. I had a storage container, got all of my stuff out of there, packed all my stuff up from my room into my car, and I drove back to North Carolina. And so <laughs> that was definitely something that was out of the ordinary with regard to my behavior that my family was able to observe. And then afterwards, it was, I think I stayed out of school for about two semesters. And then I started school at North Carolina Central University. And it was really at that point where I kind of started to spiral. I was partying a bunch. I was just, you know, going out to eat all the time. I was spending all of my money. Quite honestly, I was just super manic with periods of depression in between. I have bipolar type two disorder. So I'm, I lean more towards depression. So there were long periods of both mania and depression at that time. And I think that that's when they really started to notice, okay, maybe something is wrong. Yeah. And that's such a, a difficult time in anyone's life. You know, you're going through so much change. You're moving away from home for the first time. You're trying to balance school and being an adult and working. And so I, I think in general, that's a really hard time for people. So it makes it even harder if that is, you know, the onset of your symptoms, because I think a lot of people and maybe their family members, you know, chalk it up to life changes and may not recognize early on. So when you first started to spiral, were did you go to your doctor? Were you presented with any potential treatment options or a diagnosis or any explanation for any of those symptoms? Yeah. So when I went, while I was at Central, I decided to um, seek some help to address my behavior. I went to a school counselor who actually in turn diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. The first time I was diagnosed, I was 21 years old at the time. So I fit into the typical 19 to 21 onset statistic. And that counselor prescribed lithium. And so she put me on lithium and I absolutely hated the way that I felt on lithium. There were no highs nor lows, like, you know, no mania nor depression, but there was just an absence of feeling. And that was really hard for me. So I eventually stopped taking the lithium and I went into a really, really deep depression. So one night after that, I took a bottle of sleeping pills. I woke up the next day and I was hallucinating unbeknownst to me. I saw an ex-boyfriend in my room and I told my roommate that, you know, my ex-boyfriend was in my room and that he wouldn't leave. And of course she was concerned and had no reason to think that I was saying anything other than the truth. And she said, okay, if he doesn't leave, we're going to call the cops. And then I told her that I saw puppies in my bathroom <laughs> and we didn't have any pets. And that was the point at which she called my sister. So my sister came to the apartment, told me that my ex-boyfriend was not in the room and asked me to show her the puppies. So when I went to show her initially, I saw them, but she told me that there was nothing there. And she said, let's look again. If you see puppies, 
then you're fine. And if you don't, then we're going to need to go to the hospital. And when I looked again, I didn't see them. So I ended up checking myself into the psych ward where I stayed for two weeks. I can't exactly recall the exact experience because I was very much out of it. I just, I do remember that I was one of just maybe a couple of uh, younger people. Again, I was 21 at the time. So I just remember watching a show, a black and white show of this priest who talked about like morals and values. It was just really weird. We watched it every day. That's one memory that sticks with me. But anyways, that said, while I was in the hospital, they put me on a medication regimen, which worked a lot better for me than the lithium that I had put in, been put on previously. Can you talk about once you're discharged from the hospital, were you more hopeful that you kind of maybe had a chance to get your symptoms under control or what were you feeling? What kind of support did you have? So my first thought or feeling when I left the hospital was that of embarrassment. I was embarrassed that I had kind of gone off the rails. And, you know, I had a roommate, I had friends in school at the time, and all of a sudden I just left school with no explanation. So I was just really, really embarrassed initially. Even my job, I was working full-time and going to school full-time at that point. And so, you know, I had to call my job and tell them that I needed a medical leave of absence. So everyone kind of knew what happened and that was really embarrassing for me. But, uh, you know, I was settling into a life where I felt more balanced. The medication helped and it worked and I felt stable or at least more stable than I had been in a very long time. So, I mean, it's not ever great to have to say, oh, I went to a psych ward for two weeks. That said, it was a beneficial experience for me, and it was one that was necessary at that point in my life. It's so hard to hear that you felt embarrassment because I'm sure a lot of people feel that. And I know that when people weigh their options, the in their mind, the worst thing in the world is to go to a hospital to seek treatment. And it breaks my heart because I feel like the stigma associated keeps people from receiving that treatment that may be able to put them on a trajectory of stability with their symptoms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you would have told your work or your friends that you had to be in the hospital for a disease, you would get sent flowers and there would be cards and people would rally around you. And mm -hmm. I, I wish that that were the case when people were experiencing crisis as well. I want to talk about, you know, for the years that you went without a diagnosis, what were you doing to mitigate your symptoms? So as with a lot of people who have a chemical imbalance, I self-medicated. I, I smoked a lot of weed. <laughs> I experimented with recreational drugs. I drank and I partied and all of this was to, you know, the weed was probably more so to help me get down from the mania and then, you know, other drugs I used when I was depressed. And so it was just an unhealthy habit and cycle of self-medication. Yeah. The self-medication is so prevalent. So, you know, I just wish that there were more people that talked about, you know, how they self-medicated to mitigate symptoms. And I, 
unfortunately, I think a lot of times we look at someone who's self-medicating and all we see is the drugs or the alcohol. We don't see the root of the problem. So it becomes a barrier to treatment and people you know, there's stigma with mental illness, and then there's the added stigma of substance abuse. And then it's just a, a horrible cycle that people are in, in that phase when you were self-medicating. And then even after, even after your hospitalization, can you talk about the support that you found from your friends or your family or even your whole community? Sure. So my sister and I have always had a pretty close relationship You know, we had the same upbringing, went through the same experiences, some more traumatic than others. And so we just, like I said, had a really close relationship. So she was someone with whom I could talk about my experiences and my feelings and what was going on in my life at the time. That said, (laughs) we have always been negative influences on one another in that we feed off of one another's energy. And so when I was out partying and, you know, doing other things, she was right there with me. But she was a bit more grounded than me. So she would also be able to tell me, Carmen, what you're doing is a little bit much right now. Maybe we should pull back a little bit. My mom, on the other hand, was not one who believed in mental illness. You know, there's some people who say, okay, you're depressed, get up, shake it off and keep it moving. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time understanding that it is actually a chemical imbalance in your brain that causes these feelings and these behaviors. Luckily, she now understands that. So she is able to be a supportive influence in my life. But it took a little while. And as far as my community, I... You know, my friends are so supportive. A lot of them suffer from, we'll say, anxiety, other issues. And so they're very much on board with like counseling and medication. They're just aware of the process and and sometimes just feeling unbalanced and needing help with that. So I've had good support from my family and community, etc., I'm glad to hear that. And, you know, I think you're not alone talking about your sister. Like you guys were doing everything together and you having a chemical imbalance, you know, was probably really hard because it was normal sister behavior to go out and have fun. But then the aftermath of how you were affected versus how, you know, your sister could have been affected was probably pretty telling for her, you know, that those substances did affect you to a different degree. And that's probably hard to face as a sibling to say, you know, you feel like a hypocrite. You don't want to say, hey, let's stop because you're doing it too. But the way that it affected you was very different than the way it affected your sister. So I'm glad that, you know, she was right there with you and kind of knew what you were going through and can support you. And also, I'm glad that your mom has has come to realize, you know, mental illness is real. And Mm -hmm. so many of us have parents or, you know, loved ones who don't understand mental illness. And part of me is thankful for that, right? You, You hope that people don't have to understand what that's like. But unfortunately, so many of us nowadays are coming to find out that we are affected by mental illness. So do you think there was a specific event that kind of changed your mom's thought process around mental illness? That is a really good question. People always preface it with that when they're trying to think about the answer to the question. (laughs) That said, I think that it was as I got older and more independent that my mom realized that 
you know, my depression and other issues didn't, and other behaviors will say, didn't stem from me just being irresponsible and reckless with my life. You know, it was, I was stable and I was still having a hard time at some points because of factors that were out of my control. And this was since I have been medicated. So she really understands like, hey, okay. There may be instances where you're having a hard time and I may be one who is able to, you know, pick it up and keep moving. I may be one who does not believe in therapy, but if that is what you need to be healthy, then I will be there for you and I will support you. So again, I think it was really as I got older and showed her like, yeah, I'm, I'm not just a, an F up, we'll say. <laughs> I, I also like kind of have my stuff together, but I still struggle emotionally sometimes. And I can only imagine like as a parent coming to terms with that, right? Because you, you probably feel responsible and there's so much that, you know, you wish you could do for your child. So I, I really feel for your mom, how she had to navigate that and feel for you too, because as a child, your parent is who you look to, right? To tell you everything's okay. And with something so unknown, it's hard for your parent to do that as they're navigating too. You know, it's, it's not like anything that they've ever, you know, had in their parenting books, right? So for sure, <laughs> it is a little bit more complex. And so I applaud your mom for just coming around and supporting you and learning alongside you. So can you talk about, I, I know you and I have talked about this offline and I've been so inspired by your story. So can you talk about how your life has changed since you received your diagnosis? Sure. So I am, um, like I said, I was diagnosed when I was at North Carolina Central University, at which I did not finish my bachelor's degree. I never received my bachelor's degree. While there, I had, it was a summer semester, I remember that, but I got pregnant with my first son, my oldest. And after which time I became a stay-at-home mom and I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years. My life has changed in that I definitely make sure to take my medication regularly because I understand the importance of it. Sure, there are highs and lows, but the lows are not as debilitating as they've been in the past. And I also realized that I needed to leave what was a very toxic and emotionally abusive relationship in that 10-year period. In 2014, that was the first um, time that I decided, like, hey, I'm ready to leave. But again, I was a stay-at-home mom. So I had no money and I had nowhere to go. And I did not want to end up in a shelter with my kids. Um, so I had the motivation but I did not have the means, which was really difficult. But in 2019, I very much recognized that I could no longer stay in the relationship that I had been in. It wasn't healthy and it was negatively impacting my mental health, despite the fact that I was on medication. I started working nights and weekends in 2019. I also started school at Durham Technical Community College. I enrolled in the Clinical Trials Research Associates in Applied Science degree program. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, so the RTP area has an abundance of clinical research organizations and other pharmaceutical companies. So it's just a really great place in which to be for that particular field. So while there, I participated in two internships. 
I will say in the meantime, I moved out and lived on my own, moved in on my own with my kids. And so that was an experience as well. So I, again, I participated in two internships. While at Derm Tech, I was chosen to be a clinical research equity scholar. So my focus was on community engagement and just increasing the participation of underrepresented populations in clinical trials. So that really became a passion for me is just health equity and achieving health equity. So that's how my life has changed. It went from me feeling like I was stuck in my situation and there was no way out to me realizing like, hey, if I work hard and I try to figure it out, then I can change my circumstances. And I did. So that is what happened with me and how my life has changed since receiving my diagnosis. My life has just become like a lot more stable, essentially. It's so powerful. And just to hear your story and then on top of that, know that you were dealing with a diagnosis and going to school full time, like you had a lot on your plate. And so to hear just how much you've overcome and how well you're doing now is so encouraging to me. And and I know it is to others who are listening. And I'm curious, do you think that your diagnosis had an impact on you going the clinical trials route? I would say my experience as a Black woman had more of an impact with regard to my decision to work in clinical research. I know that there, you know, people with mental illness are in that underrepresented population category. But for me, it was a lot more apparent that my big challenges came from what people could see externally upon looking at me. And that was my color. You know, I'm black and that was my gender. I'm a woman. And so I feel like those factors have played more so into my decision to get into clinical research than mental health. Can you talk about the benefits to having that perspective of being a Black woman in clinical research? How has that impacted your career positively? Sure. So as I mentioned, I'm very much into community engagement and reaching out to underrepresented populations. And so, you know, when I work with teams who whose focus is recruitment, for example, I am very aware of the fact that you have to tailor your language to speak to your population. You have to be culturally competent. And because I come from a background that may not necessarily be the same as the majority of people who are working in recruitment. And when I say majority, I mean like non-white people, men and women alike, I've been able to bring a different perspective, essentially. And I feel like that really helps me if I am given the opportunity to actually express my opinions and give them and have them well received, then I am using my experiences to help recruit and really help overall. I mean, again, my end goal is for all of us to achieve health equity. And so as a Black woman, I'm able to bring forth my experiences and incorporate those into recruitment again, just different areas in which I work. I'm in project management right now, so I'm not at all in recruitment, but I'm able to work with the recruitment team. 
So any way in, in which I can help, I try to do so. And I liked how you talked about, you know, the health equity standpoint. And I want to go back to when you were first diagnosed, you know, did you see any barriers to your diagnosis that maybe had to do with, you know, you being a black woman or, you know, where you grew up? Any barriers like that? The first barrier, and I'm going to say the major and the only one that really comes to mind is a socioeconomic factor. I have since befriended, and she's a really, really good friend, a woman who, while she was in college, experienced a mental health issue, and her parents knew that it was an option for her to take a medical leave of absence from school. Her parents knew that because they had experience in school. They'd gone to college and they were familiar with these processes. I was not. You know, I was not fortunate enough to have that information. And so when I had a breakdown of sorts, instead of speaking to the administration and trying to talk to my advisor, I just left. I left school. And so that very much negatively impacted my GPA, which impacted, you know, further educational opportunities. I also owed a lot of money to the school because, you know, when you leave, you still have to pay for your classes if you leave school. So these were factors that, you know, negatively impacted me. And I will say it was very much socioeconomic as opposed to racial and gender-based biases. I think that's so important that you talk about like the lack of education that not only you had, but, you know, that your mom had, that people around you had, that they weren't aware of your options. And so I'm sure you've used that experience, you know, when you do your community outreach to let everyone, you know, these are your options, whether it be research trials or options in general about their treatment. I think that's so important. And that's something that I think we miss the mark on a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lack of knowledge, especially not only like with school, but medical knowledge. People are unaware Mm -hmm. like clinical trials is an option or, you know, you said you were put on lithium and you didn't like the way it felt. So you, you stopped taking it. So I think there needs to be better education and communication, especially with communities who maybe have other social determinants of health that, you know, aren't typical that we're not really looking at. So I think that's a very insightful perspective. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, if I may interject, I also think that, you know, my experience with lithium and not taking it because I didn't like the way that I felt That also speaks to a lack of communication between Mm. care providers and their patients. You know, I was not told the possible like reactions or like side effects of lithium. That wasn't communicated to me. And so when I felt those side effects, I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know, well, maybe they can subside. I don't even know if that's the case with lithium. There was just not an open channel of communication between my provider and myself. And granted, I saw a counselor at school. So, I mean, I'm sure that they hired very well-qualified people, but I don't think it was the same experience that I would have gotten had I seen a medical professional in a private practice, I will say. So just the lack of education and communication plays a huge factor in overall health outcome. And as you said, education with regard to clinical trials 
falls in the same category. You know, if you don't educate people about the possible benefits of clinical research and clinical trials, if you don't let people know that, you know, 20% of drugs metabolize differently in certain races, backgrounds, gene pools, then people don't realize the importance of participating in clinical trials because they don't know, hey, this medication might affect me differently than the people on whom the medication is being tested. So education overall from all healthcare providers, clinical research or, you know, a primary care physician, education is very important. And that's on the part of clinical research professionals as well as healthcare providers. Absolutely. Especially with a mental health diagnosis, you know, especially as a person of color, you need to realize, right, that the medications can affect you differently. And I think you you hit the nail on the head there when you talked about how lithium, you weren't really given the background on how lithium could affect you. And so I think that it just speaks to how important it is for people of color and, you know, various genders to enroll in clinical trials so that there can be better treatment options so they can can be, you know, more educated and, and feel more part of their treatment, right? Not just here's a medication, take it. Right. They have an active role in not only helping themselves, but helping generations to come who may have bipolar disorder or even cancer research. I think it's really important. So before we go today, what kind of actions are you taking to support your mental health? So first things first, I take my medication. <laughs> I would say that that's probably something that's of the utmost importance because you cannot balance those chemicals by yourself. It actually does take medication to do so. So to recognize that fact, I mean, for anyone who's out there and is like, I can do this without medication, I'll be fine. Like, no, you can't. And no, you won't because bipolar disorder and other mental illnesses don't just go away on their own. So you're going to need like lifelong support, be it in the form of counseling or medication. And that's something I've realized. I also have a therapist. I speak to my therapist regularly because I recognize that I need to talk about my feelings. <laughs> Some people say that, you know, that's unnecessary, just chalk it up and keep it moving, but, or suck it up rather and keep it moving. But sometimes I just need a sounding board because sometimes I have really big feelings and I need to sometimes be brought down to earth and say, Carmen, this is not as big of a deal as you're making it out to be. Another thing that I do is I write affirmational phrases on the mirror in my room. You're a great mom. If not now, then when? You were groomed for success. These are phrases that I write on my mirror to keep me motivated, to let me know, you know, life is an ongoing learning experience. Anytime that you're feeling super down and feeling hopeless, there's always a mountain after the valley and all you have to do is hang in there because sometimes you feel like the valley is so deep that you can't climb out of it. For example, I also have my goals, like my two, three year plan written on my mirror because I need to recognize like I have goals. There are places where I need to be. There are things that I want to do. 
So today there's more to life beyond what's happening right now. So just keeping those things in mind, affirmational phrases, keeping my goals in mind, looking at my family and saying like, hey, I am a rock for them. I need to be here to support them throughout their lives. And again, taking my medication, these are ways in which I work on my mental health on a daily basis. I love that. And just hearing your redemption story, you know, where you started and where you're at now, I think I've said it a thousand times to you. I'm just so touched and I want more people to know, you know, your diagnosis isn't the end of the world, right? I mean, there's Mm -hmm. things that do in your daily life to remind yourself and so the, those good days, whether they be few and far between, that's what's really important to cling to. I want to know, my last question mm-hmm. is, you know, I know we probably have a lot of people listening that are maybe in early phases of their diagnosis or mm-hmm. feeling helpless. If you could go back and tell the younger version of yourself or your family, if you could talk to them when you were first diagnosed what would you say? So I will start with the advice that I would give to my younger self. And I actually just mentioned it. And the real big takeaway for me is that no situation is permanent. Like I mentioned, I attempted suicide twice. And people who do such things typically do so because they feel hopeless. So to have in your mind and to reinforce the idea and the fact that, you know, any situation is not permanent. It may seem like you're helpless. It may seem like it's the worst day ever. It may seem like you don't want to continue to live. You need to remember that at some point, like this, this too shall pass. I know it's so cliche, but it's true. As far as my family goes, I would just say, if you see that your child is exhibiting abnormal behavior. So abnormal behavior is not just, you know, a kid who's depressed every now and then, who's like down and in their room. Abnormal behavior is when it becomes a pattern. So it was kind of a joke, especially when I was in my early teens, that when I was feeling down, as we would say, instead of depressed, I would put on a hoodie, (laughs) put the hood on, and sit in my room on my bed and eat there and sleep there and watch TV there and like not do anything else. And it is important for friends and family members to take note that that is not normal. So maybe you need to check in. Maybe you need to suggest counseling. Maybe just intervene when you suspect that there may be something going on beyond just normal adolescent or preteen or teen feelings. Just try and be aware. And awareness starts, again, we'll go back to it, education. For people to understand the signs and symptoms of mental illness, that just would go a long way. But that also has to do with people being open-minded and recognizing and like not playing into the stigma that comes along. So yeah, overall, I would say give yourself grace, be vulnerable so that you can tell people when you're having a hard time. And hopefully if you're vulnerable enough, those loved ones around you will listen and take action. I love all of that. And, you know, I think everything that you've said this whole episode, 
I just know is resonating with people that are listening. But, you know, I think it's important what you said, like intervene. It's it, You're never going to regret intervening, right? Mm-hmm. But you very well may regret not saying something out mm-hmm. of discomfort or not wanting to hurt someone's feelings. And mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with what some people may think is a moody teenager, right? You, yeah. you don't want them to cut you off and not think you're not a cool parent, but at the end of the day, it's what they need so many times. So I just really appreciate your perspective and, you know, telling us your story, your family's story. It's not easy. And I know a lot of people, they were like, I don't want to put my my family on blast, but this isn't about anything that families do wrong. It's just to let families know you're not alone and mm-hmm. how you, you know, go about this. Nobody, like I said, nobody writes a book on how to deal with this. And so I hope that people are encouraged and I'm hoping that it resonates with someone out there and they can know that their diagnosis whether it be bipolar disorder or any other diagnosis is the beginning of a amazing journey and that they're going to make it just like you've made it and you're here today sharing your story. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate it. Mallory, thank you so, so much for having me. As you said, I hope that if I can just reach one person, that is always my goal. If if just one person hears my message and knows that they're not alone, and if I could be in their presence and give them a hug, I would because... Sometimes people just need to feel that they're not alone and they need their feelings to be validated. So I hope that I have been able to do so for at least one person. And thank you for giving me the platform on which to do so. I really appreciate you. Absolutely. And in our show notes, we will have resources specifically for communities of color for their mental health, as well as the AFSP, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, their 988 number and other resources by state. So we'll be sure to share all that in the resource notes. And if you have any questions or if there's anyone out there who specifically would like to be in contact with Carmen, you can email me at Mallory at the star with two rs.org. We would love to help you or point you in the direction of help. You're never alone. And, you know, we're here to do anything that we can. So thanks, Carmen, again. And we'll see you on the next episode, everybody. 